Jeff had to be out of town today, and he asked for a volunteer, and so I raised my hand. And uh, I gave him three different things that I was thinking about as appropriate for today, and he said, I think you should do this one. So if it doesn't go well, it's on Jeff. (laughs) You know, I say that a little tongue-in-cheek, but I... Some of the guys that are here, uh, guys in the men's group on Sunday morning, have heard most of this message before, and and I did get some significant pushback in the middle of the message. So I'm I'm going to warn you and ask you to remember: don't shoot the messenger. Um, I didn't write the scripture, and so what we're going to be looking at this morning may challenge some of you in the things that you think about. And the overall uh, thrust of what I want to talk about this morning is what I would call thanksgiving and prayer. And as I get started, you'll go, huh? Uh, That doesn't sound like a message that is going to be based on thanksgiving and prayer, but hang with me for a little while. You know, interestingly, uh, next week will be the 470 or 67th anniversary of an event that happened in England in 1555, in mid-October of 1555. Two men, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, were sentenced to be burned at the stake as heretics for their faithfulness to the Word of God and their testimony of Christ Jesus. These men were chained to a wooden stake. Their hands were left free. Their necks were chained to the stake, not to choke them, but just to keep them in place so they wouldn't fall down. And then wood was stacked up from their feet up to their necks. A friend offered these two men a bag of gunpowder to be wrapped around their neck, and both of them accepted it. And as the executioners laid a flaming faggot at the feet of Dr. Ridley, Master Latimer spoke to his friend saying, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. As they burned, each called out to God to receive their spirit. They were martyred for speaking the truth to those who taught lies. Now, that's an interesting thing to contemplate. We don't have much of that going on in our culture, in our world today. It still happens in some places in the, in the world, but not so much here. But it certainly is sobering. <clears throat> Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, he said, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but listen to this, but also to suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you to suffer for his sake. Now, what I want to do is examine today how we're instructed by Scripture to view all the things that God allows in our lives and what our response is supposed to be. There's a vital principle that's revealed in Scripture that many Christians fail to grasp and obey. In 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5, uh, chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16, 16 through 18, it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Many of you will be familiar with this next part. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 
It doesn't say in the things that feel good, in the things you think you should be thankful about. It says in everything, give thanks. For a select group of people, and that includes us as his children in in Christ, for a select group of people, it says that God is using everything for their good to cause them to become changed and to be conformed more to be like Jesus, his only begotten beloved son. In Romans chapter 8, we read the following. This is chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God. That's the select group, for those who love God. It doesn't say he causes all things to work together for good for everybody in the whole world. But for us, if we love God, he's said, yes, he's causing everything to work together for our good. To those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. It's a process. He's changing us. In Ephesians chapter 5, First verses 15 through 17, and then I skip over and I I pick up at verse 20. Listen to what it says. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And here's verse 20. Always giving thanks for all things. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, even the Father. Are you seeing a pattern here? Give thanks for all things? That's hard to do. So I ask, do we thank God for all things, even calamity? Does God cause calamity? Now this is where I started to get some pushback in the men's group. And this may challenge some of you, so just stick with me. Again, I didn't write the scripture, but I want you to hear what the word has to say about this. I watched a a video just recently of uh, a sermon by Bill Johnson, who's the founder and pastor of the megachurch Bethel out in California. And he began with, my God does not cause calamity. And then he asked his congregation, he said, can I get an amen? And of course, the whole congregation responded robustly with amen. And I found myself going, oh my goodness, wow. So my question is, what does Scripture say on this matter? In Isaiah 45, 7, we read, The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. That's pretty straightforward. In Amos chapter 3, verse 6, Scripture says, if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Again, that's not very ambivalent. That's pretty straightforward. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 19, it reads, Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster on this people. The fruit of their plans, because they have not listened to my words, And as for my law, they have rejected it also. One more, and then I'm going to give you a word of encouragement. You know, I think of Scripture as something that says we're supposed to edify, we're we're supposed to encourage, and we're supposed to exhort. And all three of those are important, and they're appropriate. 
In Jeremiah 32, 23, it says, they came in and took possession of it. It's talking about the the people of Israel. God has said, I'm going to lead you into a land flowing with milk and honey. So he took them into the promised land. But they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this calamity come upon them. So once again, God's in control. This is not random. It's not like he threw these cosmic billiard balls out into the universe and they just collided with one another and he went, ooh, I didn't see that happening. This is God saying, this is me doing this. I'm in complete control. It says about the flood, it said, God reigned at the flood. He reigns over all the earth. Now, in 2 Chronicles 7, 13 through 14, we learn what our response should be to hard things. Hear what it says. It says, if I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locust to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. So there's, there's a promise there. It's like, I'm, I'm interacting with you. I'm the God of creation. I'm trying to get your attention. And there's a reason for this. It's not random. And he's in control. So how should we respond in hard times, even in calamity? Listen to how the, the prophet Ezekiel instructs us. In Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 31 through 33, and then further down in 38 and 40, it says... For the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. And then in verse 38, he says, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Let us examine and probe our ways, and let us return to the Lord. Now, are we supposed to thank God for affliction and calamity? Listen to this passage from Psalms. This again, I didn't write this. This is what the scripture says. And and it's something that causes us to stop and think that God is holy. God is perfect and righteous in all of his ways. And he loves us. So in, in Psalms... He says in Psalm 119, verses 67 and 68, and then skipping down to verse 71, he says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. And then he says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. So this is a wise man that has learned from God's interaction in his life that These things that he's allowed in my life, they're divinely appointed. They're to put me on the right track. This truth is not just found in the Old Testament, but it's for us as well. Consider this passage from Hebrews. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. And right in the middle, there's a nugget contained. I want you to listen for it. He says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons, my son, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Now let me interject, not all hardship 
not all calamity is, is necessarily discipline. I'll get to that in a minute. But this is what Hebrews says about it. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now listen, this is the nugget. A lot of people miss this. So he's talking about disciplining his sons. And then he says, but if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, God doesn't interfere in the lives that are not his chosen. He doesn't discipline them. He doesn't try to get their attention and turn them back on a path that's, that's good for them. This is something he does for those he loves. Every son that he loves, he disciplines and reproves. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Now listen to this next part. All discipline, for the moment, seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it, afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So this is something that as we begin to embrace it more and more, and we say, this is not random. God's in complete control of everything that goes on in my life. He's God, and he knows the thoughts of every man's heart. All 8 billion people on the planet simultaneously. I can't process that. But he's God. Now, so yes, we thank God for affliction. We also thank him for his reproof. Listen to this from Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1, we read, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. There's another scripture that says, he who stiffens his neck after much reproof will be broken suddenly and without remedy. In other words, God will continue to, pro to, to prod us. He will continue to try and train us and get us back onto the path that pleases him. But if we stiffen our neck, what comes next is not something we want to have happen. <clears throat> Godly men of old even asked God to correct them. Listen to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 10, 24. He says, correct me, O Lord, but with justice, not with your anger, or you will bring me to nothing. I can certainly identify with that. I, I can remember times when I, I realized that I was being disciplined and I went, Lord, please don't discipline me in your anger. Please discipline me in your loving kindness. You know, and I hope I listen. I hope I get, get the point and I don't have to have it happen again and again to repeat the lesson. <clears throat> Sometimes when calamity or hard things occur, it does not necessarily mean that it's because of sin. I want you to consider the, the circumstance involving Job in the Bible. He was being tested. He was not being disciplined. And here's what we know about Job. In the very first verse of the first chapter of the book of Job, it tells us about him. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, 
fearing God and turning away from evil. And then later on, in, in verse 8 of that same chapter, this is what God says to Satan about Job's character. He says, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of Job, you would not discount what happened to him. It was surely calamity. All of his children, seven sons and three daughters, were killed in one day when a wind caused the house to fall on them. That would be like us having our entire family of 10 children in a, in a big passenger van headed down the, the road and getting hit you know, head on by a semi and all of our children being killed all at one time. That was how tragic it was for Job. All of his children, seven sons and three daughters, killed at one moment. <clears throat> he lost all of his wealth. He was afflicted with painful boils over his entire body from head to toe. How did Job respond? Listen to what it says. Still in chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, after his children were killed, it says, Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Now, Job's wife had a little different response. She told him to curse God and die. And Job responded to her by saying, You speak as one of the foolish women. Should we not accept good from God and not accept adversity? So the question I have is, do, do you look <clears throat> for what God is doing for your good when hard things are allowed in your life? Or do you respond with anger or resentment? Or do you complain? All of those are possible responses, and the scripture addresses those. Listen to carefully to this next scripture from Job. Now, there were three friends that came to Job, Ilphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they were men that were roughly of the same stature of jo as Job. They were elderly men like Job was an, an elderly man. And then there was another character in the book of Job whose name was Elihu. And Elihu was a younger man who sat and listened to the discourse between Job and his three friends for quite a long time. And after he'd listened for quite a long time, this is what Elihu says to Job. <clears throat> it's found in chapter 34, verses 31, or actually verse 33. He said to Job, shall he, meaning God, recompense you on your terms because you have rejected it? In other words, he's saying to us, do you only think that your approach to things is right? That the creator of the universe, when he's interacting in your life, who's perfect in wisdom and knowledge, is doing something and you're supposed to reject it because you don't like it? So that was basically what Elihu was saying to, to Job. In the New Testament, we read, from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, Job had a trial. He had a really severe trials. But we're told, consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. And let endurance, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. 
And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In James chapter 5, further on in the letter that the Lord's brother wrote to the church, it says, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Now, what was the outcome for Job? He suffered and endured. In the last chapter of Job, we see what resulted. Job is 42 chapters in length, and you have to get all the way into the middle of the 42nd chapter before you learn what the outcome was for Job. Listen to what it says. In Job 42, verse 10, and then verses 12 and 13, it says, The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Now, there's something interesting that goes on here. It says, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And then it goes on to say, here's what he gave him. 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. That was double the wealth that was listed for Job in chapter 1. So he had given him double everything that he took away from him. But here's something to think about. It says he had seven sons and three daughters. So he doubled everything else, but he gave him seven more sons and three more daughters. He had seven sons in the beginning and three daughters, and they were all killed when a wind collapsed the house on them. But he didn't give him 14 sons and six daughters. He gave him seven sons and three daughters, but he doubled everything else. It's my conjecture that what that means is Job had all of his children together in eternity. He had one group to begin with and another group later on, but they were all going to be with him, and so he really did double everything. It's conjecture on my part. So maybe I'm wrong, but since he doubled everything else, that's what it leads me to think. Now, we must remember, again, that all hard things are not disciplined. Some of them are testing In Proverbs 17.3, it says, The refining pot is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. Now, when you remove impurities from silver and from gold, you smelt it, and you heat it up until the impurities rise to the top, and you can pour it off. That's what the refining pot was. Well, the the writer of, of Proverbs here is telling us essentially the same thing, that God tests our hearts. And when he tests our hearts... Most of the time, it's with pretty difficult things. When things are hard, we must pray. Do you desire to go before the Lord in prayer and have him receive your prayer? Now, as I listened to Tim's prayer before I came up here, and as I listened to the songs that the music team was singing, I thought, wow, that is just hand in glove for what what scriptures I've got to share with you today. Listen to, to what Tim said earlier. This is from Psalm 100. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. When we want to go before the Lord, we want to enter his courts with thanksgiving and we want to bless and praise his name. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, what was the first thing he instructed them? Now, all of us know the prayer that Jesus taught the disciples. It starts out, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's what Jesus started with 
when he addressed the Father. He praised him. He recognized his, his glory, his majesty. That's what we do. We recognize that we should say, Father, hallowed be thy name. <clears throat> when we pray this, aren't we praising him? Aren't we proclaiming his greatness and his majesty? Listen to this next verse in Psalm 95. It says, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Now, if God answers your prayer, if you pray to him and he hears you and he grants your request, do you remember to thank him? Do you remember to praise him? Do you remember to exalt his name and share it with the saints so that his name is, is exalted in the assembly of the righteous? <clears throat> Another thought, if you were about to go before the Lord in prayer and request something and beforehand you believed he was going to grant it, would you wait to receive it to thank him? Now, I'll give you a simple analogy. Let's suppose you were a teenager and you wanted to ask your dad for the keys to the car one night so you could take your girlfriend out on a date. If you already believed, perhaps from experience, that your dad was going to say, okay, here's the keys, be careful, wouldn't you say, Thank you, Dad, for always responding to me and always being so generous and gracious to let me do this. Wouldn't it be appropriate to do the same sort of thing with the Lord? If we believe ahead of time he's going to grant what we're going to ask, shouldn't we be thanking him ahead of time? Listen to this next scripture. <clears throat> this is Jesus teaching us in Mark chapter 11, verse 24. He says, Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, before you pray, believe that you've already received these things. So when you pray, if you believe you're going to receive them, wouldn't you start out saying, thank you? Thank you for all that you're doing for me? <clears throat> Jesus did this. We have one recorded instance of it. And it happens when Jesus is about to call Lazarus out of the tomb when he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Listen to the scripture here. It's in John chapter 11, verses 41 and 42. It says, So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes. I can picture the Lord standing there with all of these people that were gathered about with Lazarus in the tomb, and he raised his eyes up toward heaven. And here's what Jesus said. He said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know you always hear me, and I thank you, but I said it out loud so these people standing around will hear it and know that you sent me. And then he called Lazarus out of the tomb. Now, what consequences fall on us if we don't listen to these instructions in scripture what if we don't give thanks what if instead we complain and we get angry and we grumble listen to romans chapter 1 verse 21 it says for even though they knew god they did not honor him as god or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened then three verses down it says in Romans 1.24, Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their own hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And then in verses 28 through 32, it says, and, they just, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, 
he gave them over to a depraved mind. And then he lists the things that flowed out of, of their lives as a result of this. Things like unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. And although they, knew, they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. In other words, the fact that these people conduct these things this way was a result of the fact that they quit being thankful to God. They didn't acknowledge God. They didn't honor him as the creator. And so God turned them over to a depraved mind. <clears throat> so the question I, I ask is, how about you? Will you choose to always be thankful? When scripture says, give thanks in all things, for this is the will of God towards you in Christ Jesus, it's not a suggestion. It's an instruction for us, his children. You'll discover that the more you do this, the more you will do it. If you start thanking God over and over again for the things he's doing in your life, you will be amazed at the changes he will bring about. Now, I, I debated whether to share this next part with you, but I'm going to. 22 years ago, I got diagnosed with cancer. And at that time, my daughter was a 16-year-old in high school. And I gathered the family together, and we went and sat down, and I said, we're going to give thanks for this cancer. And my daughter immediately responded and said, no, no, you might not even be here to walk me down the aisle. And I said, well, we're still going to give thanks. Now, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm being transparent with you, and I'm saying I practice what I'm encouraging you to do. And I've been practicing this for a long time. Is it easy? No, because when I got that cancer diagnosis, I felt like a horse had kicked me in the stomach because I didn't know how it was going to turn out. But I said, well, it says we're supposed to give him thanks. So I sat down, and over the protest of my daughter and, and, and others, you know, I said, okay, we're going to thank him for this. And I can tell you from experience that if you will give thanks in everything, you will be amazed at the things that God will reveal in your life because he's good. He's perfect. He's righteous. He's doing things for us because he loves us. Remember, for those who love God, he's causing all things to work together for good. Not for everybody on the planet, but for those who love God. <clears throat> now, the events in mine and your lives are not random. Consider the following scripture. This is from Proverbs chapter 26, verse 2. It says, like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, so a curse without cause does not alight. In other words, there's a reason for things. God is not just being random. He's not being some, you know, vengeful, you know, mean God pushing the smite button. There's always a reason for something that God's allowing in our lives. <clears throat> Remember, Job was not being disciplined. God said there's no man on earth like him. But he had awfully difficult things that happened to him. So revisiting Job just a little bit, back to Job chapter 1, it says, while he was still speaking, 
Another also came and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Now, this was after all of his wealth had been destroyed or taken away by bands of marauders. It says, behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. You've already heard this. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. You know, he told his wife, Shall we accept good from the Lord and not accept adversity? Now, sometimes we may be receiving discipline. Listen to Daniel in chapter 9. Now, the children of Israel came out of the land when Moses took them out of the land. And they went through the wilderness for 40 years. And then they lived almost 400 years with judges before they had kings. And then they lived another 400 years before they were taken into captivity. So for 800 years from the time of Moses until they were taken into captivity, By Nebuchadnezzar, they had had the law, which Moses gave them when he came down from Mount Sinai. And he set before them a blessing and a curse. He said, if you follow God and you do these things, you'll be blessed more than anybody on the face of the earth. But if you don't follow God's statutes and you worship other gods and you do these things, then you'll be cursed more than any other people. Now, it's not like he just did that, boom, just like that. He let 800 years go by from the time that he first told them how he was going to deal with them. In the meantime, he sent them prophet after prophet after prophet to say, turn back from your wicked ways. Don't worship these foreign gods. They were burning their own children in the fire, sacrificing them to demons, to foreign gods. And God was patient with them. And he continued to send a messenger after messenger. But he had told them 800 years before, if you keep doing this, this is going to be the result. Now, here was what Daniel said, because he knew this. In Daniel 9, 13 through 14, it says, As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. Now, a bit of a warning. Rather than giving thanks to God, you may be complaining or grumbling. Hear what the scripture says if you are. We read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It says, this was God talking about, again, the children of Israel out in the wilderness. And they, they became immoral They worshipped an idol. They made a golden calf for themselves almost immediately. And they grumbled and complained. And here's what God said about the grumbling and complaining. He lumped it in with idol worship and with sexual immorality. It was just as bad. Grumbling and complaining was just as bad as the other things. Listen to what he said. He says, now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. 
Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So each of us gets to choose. We can either give thanks in all things, we can praise him, we can extol his name, or we can grumble and complain. We can get angry. But there's a, there's a price. You do it at your own peril. <clears throat> so in closing, what are the takeaways? First, give thanks to God in all things, just as his word says. Second, praise him. Third, endure trials and count them all joy. And fourth, we must examine ourselves. If need be, we must repent. And finally, pray, hope in him, and trust, because he's faithful. Let me close in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, you've, you've told us that just as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and water the earth and give, give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, that so your word will be that goes forth from your mouth. Lord, I, I pray that this scripture, which is your holy word, that it'll, it'll be planted deep in our hearts, that, that we will be being transformed by it, Father, by the renewing of our minds in your word, and that you'll be causing us, your children, to each one be being conformed more and more to the image of Jesus. We give thanks to you for giving your son on our behalf, for giving him to die, to shed his blood, to take away our sins so that you don't hold them against us anymore. And we pray, Father, that in your loving kindness that you'll lead us so that we'll walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling in Christ Jesus. And I pray all these things in his holy name. Amen.